Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 40th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is upending the past on behalf of justice. I'm joined by Kelly Nicole Gross, the co-author, along with Dana Ramey Berry, of A Black Women's History of the United States. The publisher is Beacon Press. Kelly is acting professor of African-American studies at Emory University. Her previous books include Hannah Mary Tabbs and the Disembodied Torso, the winner of the 2017 Hurston Wright Legacy Award in nonfiction. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, I look forward to it. So I know your specialty is more the back half of this book. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the entire book, but slanted a bit to the part you're the specialist on? Uh, For sure. Absolutely. So our book is a a survey of African-American women's history. We start in the 1600s and we end in 2000. And what we try to do is to just introduce readers to some of the breadth and scope of Black women's contributions to the the national history and to really center Black women's stories in that history. Um, And we use an overarching set of themes. On one hand, we don't want to suggest that Black women's experiences through, you know, this broad expanse of time and across the country are monolithic. Um, So we resist that. But at the same time, there are a number of themes that definitely impact Black women's lives. And we focus on themes like travel, migration, violence, activism, labor and entrepreneurship, crime and incarceration, art and performance, and um, sexuality and the erotic, and of course, resistance. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an incredibly broad and rich scope. I mean, I'm someone who's an avid, uh, have an avid interest in history, and yet there's all sorts of terms and anecdotes and storylines here that I did not know about. So lots to dig into. I'm going to start super contemporary and beyond the scope of the book because I don't remember whether it was the New York Times or the Washington Post, but when I was reading coverage about uh, Oprah interviewing Meghan Markle and Harry and regarding their son, Archie, you were quoted. Uh, yes. Do you want to remind uh, <laughs> listeners or tell listeners what you what you said? And I'm going to add in a few bits myself. Um, sure. So I um, just talked about how in the beginning of this sort of saga you know, it it opened up with this sort of promise, right? You have, you know, Megan, uh, a biracial Black woman from the United States, you know, being wed to Prince Harry. Um, it seemed like it was this moment where the, the monarchy was poised to advance kind of 
the you know the globe potentially around issues of of race and racism and then you know by the time we sort of get through this you know historic interview with Oprah i realized in retrospect how naive it was for me to imagine that anything other than that would be the outcome when we think about the fact that the british monarchy played a foundational role in establishing anti-blackness i mean they yes. traded enslaved Africans, right? Kidnapped Africans, right? They dealt in those those people's lives, bodies, and blood for, you know, almost over 200 years. And they basically helped set up, you know, as again, sort of a foundational role in, in anti-Black racism globally. Yeah, no, they, they wrestled the slave trade away from the Portuguese and the Dutch, and uh, profited mightily from it. I, I have to tell you, I'm not sure whether I'm, I'm uh, ashamed of this or not, but for Cosmopolitan Magazine, they actually asked me to use my specialty, which is reading faces, facial coding, to look at the royal wedding. And uh, for me, the the, the honeymoon uh, you know, fairy tale aspect of this ended pretty quickly because I noticed in the faces of many of the guests at the wedding, they were looking at uh, Megan's mother, seated mm-hmm. there in the pews. And I'm horrified to report that there was all sorts of instances of smirking and disgust expressions and anger directed at her mom prior to the wedding commencing. So um, I, I knew it was going to be a tough, a tough road. You know, I'm, I'm sad to hear that, especially too, because I thought the ceremony itself was, oh, it was, was wonderful. beautifully yeah. done, right? <laughs> yes, I mean, it was. <laughs> so... So yeah, no, no. There was all sorts of wonderful aspects to it, but you know what I saw on the sidelines there um, sadly stayed with me. Well, you were right, and the thing about it, just to sort of bring it to kind of this history that we're talking about, is that even some of the accusations that they're currently sort of lodging against Megan, right? This idea that somehow she bullied the staff. I mean, that's also a part of these tropes that have been historically sort of applied to black women that black women are bossy and you know you know overly demanding and, and sort of you know brutish in these ways so any black woman with power kind of gets tarnished as being somehow angry or a bully or volatile so when i heard yep. some of that language too i thought oh wow so they've just gone straight to it yeah, no, that trope was brought back. Absolutely. So let's go back in time. I mean, there's all sorts of, of women to highlight here. Uh, one that I've always been really keen on um, is Ida B. Wells. Um, so it, one detail you had in here, which I thought was absolutely amazing, and I hadn't thought of it from that angle, that prior to emancipation, as you note, most lynchings were of white men because black bodies possessed monetary value. There was against the law to lynch a white person's property. So, of course, she wrote, among other things, Southern Whores. And I thought, if you want to say a little about Ida B. Wells and her absolute bravery to bring these things forward, you know, she was in Memphis at the time. Right. Ida B. Wells is one of these incredible figures in history. And I'm so glad that she's starting to get more and more attention. There's an effort underway to erect a monument to her. There's a new book out about her. Um, She's just phenomenal. She was, you know, um, born just as slavery was coming to an end. Her parents had been enslaved. Um, she grew up largely in freedom. And you can't see me, but I have my hand in quotation marks. Um, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, it's this moment where certainly sort of, you know, enslavement is supposed to have been ended. And this is 
period where African-Americans are being conferred citizenship at the same time that it's meeting a very robust, uh, virulent form of white supremacy that is um, increasingly homicidal in a way that prior to this, most Black people had not experienced before, as you pointed out. Um, because so many folks were property, you couldn't just go and kill a black person. Otherwise, you'd have to compensate their owner um, and all the rest. So at, at this moment where you have black people starting to enjoy kind of the the benefits of citizenship in this fleeting way, you start to see this spate of lynchings. And the rhetoric, of course, around the lynching is that black men had raped white women or something to that effect. And Ida B. Wells, after sort of learning of the horrible instance where one of her friends had been a victim of one of these lynchings, she knew immediately that, you know, this was an upstanding person and that his only crime was that he had been running a business that was profitable and presenting competition to a white business. So this led her to begin to investigate these instances of lynchings. And what she found was that these were basically these lawless, um, racist, extra legal killings of Black people that worked to sort of enforce and serve white supremacy. It was designed to kind of reinscribe the racial hierarchy of old. So she bravely canvasses, she documents, she calls attention to the lies and around the narratives that people try to use to justify the killings. Um, And she especially calls attention to the the lie around Black men raping white women. She notices in a number of instances there are consensual sexual relationships. Uh, So this gets her, you know, a bounty placed on her head. I mean, she had formed, she had her own newspaper where she was sort of refuting these allegations. You know, there's a bounty placed on her head. She's driven from Memphis in the South. Her press is destroyed, but she continues. I mean, yeah, no, her, yeah, her, her resilience is just amazing. And, you know, there she sits in Memphis, just above the Delta. And Mississippi, of course, was, you know, ground zero for discrimination and repression of all horrendous natures. So I'm so glad you brought up the issue of rape, because, yes, this myth is that it was black men raping white women. And in fact, you mentioned in the book that the Great Migration a big part of it was that a lot of the female workforce, black women workers, were domestic servants at risk constantly of rape. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we do in the book is really to draw a through line through um, sort of the early period of enslavement to show that as enslavement is um, erected in the country, you start to have laws hitting the books that don't just sort of position Black people as less than than human and as chattel, but that also expressly leave Black women vulnerable to sexual violence. And so almost as soon as you have, you know, enslavement kind of mandated through like statutes in, in 1640, by 1662 in Virginia, you have this statute that changes to say that the status of a child, whether they're free or enslaved, is going to be dependent upon the status of the mother. And that was a change for, because typically, you know, English, it follows a sort of patriarchal order. If your father was free, then you would be free. But 
there had been so many sort of rapes at that point of enslaved women and so many biracial offspring. And people were uncertain about whether they were, in fact, free or enslaved because of their color. They changed the statute to make it clear. If your mother is a slave, you are a slave. doesn't matter the paternity of the father. So this sort of incentivizes kind of the rape of Black women, because then you have, you know, Black women, you own, the more children they produce, the more property and wealth you have. So yes, the it's same, perverse. It's perverse. At the same time that you have that kind of legislation going on the books, you also have this legislation that starts to crop up that has like specificity around rape crime. So harsher punishments if a rapist is a Black man than a white man, but the only victims ever acknowledged in law are white women. So yeah. you have statutes on the books that say, you know, have harsher punishments for um, black men who try to rape or or who do rape a white woman or a white girl versus punishments for a white man who rapes a white woman or attempts to rape a white woman or a white girl. And those same statutes have no punishment listed at all for the rape of a black woman or a black girl by either a white or black man. So that historical precedent that leaves those precedents that leave black women so vulnerable is this through line that carries on right through. So when we get to the end of the Civil War and this period where you have black people wanting to seize upon freedom, rape of black women, that sort of violence is one of the tactics that's again used to reinscribe those racial hierarchies of old. And so that had been this um, this crime and this particular type of violence that really endures so that even as Black women enter white homes as domestics, you have them especially vulnerable to sexual assault by sons in the house, by um, men who are working in the home. And then as before, they don't really have any avenues toward justice. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a horrendous situation. But, you know, with all the knowledge that I had of of slavery, I, I you know, the fact that that woman is there in the house, you know, behind doors, uh, even the sons, as you said just a moment ago, I mean, the, the degree of vulnerability is is really extreme and the, the patterns are so pernicious as to what happened. Moving a little bit more contemporary, actually much more contemporary, mm-hmm. um, you know, with Anita Hill and the Clarence Thomas hearings, I knew a good deal about it. I did not realize that there was someone waiting, uh, Sakari Harnett, to testify on Anita's behalf. And that was, I guess, in effect, suppressed. Um, Any comments you want to make regarding those hearings and what her testimony might have meant? You know, I think that it marks for me. So there are two things about the the, the Anita Hill um, trial that we talk about, thinking about, you know, these themes around Black women and, and sexual violence and vulnerability. Um, one is sort of the way that it's, it's still disallowed, right? The idea that, you know, a Black woman could be a victim of sort of sexual harassment. And then it was still sort of, you know, people just could not kind of accept the idea that this would have happened, that he could have done it, all these things, right? So she was sort of, again, on that trajectory. But also, too, that even before we have Anita Hill, we have, you know, Miss Bundy in, in, you know, 19, you know, 1977, basically suing, you know, Sandra Bundy, suing the Washington, D.C. Department of Corrections after having been repeatedly sexually propositioned by her superiors. 
Yeah. So, you know, she also, you know, she was this single working mom who really needed a job and had just gotten fed up with the level of harassment and discrimination. And her case, which they thought was a long shot, is actually the one that basically helps to establish sexual harassment itself um, as as a form of sex discrimination. So I still like to say she kind of helps pave the way for the um, Anita Hill case. But in thinking about sort of, you know, the way that the testimony was suppressed, I think it was just, it marks a sad period where you have Black women once again being really heroic and sort of running up this hill, taking a stand only to have, you know, the sort of power structure still work to effectively silence their voices. Um, But maybe that's too pessimistic because even though, you know, Anita Hill arguably doesn't get justice in those hearings and, and, you know, Clarence Thomas is, is still a justice today. I mean, her case basically broke open sexual harassment on jobs. It made it kind of sort of, you know, it was a topic of household discussion in the nation in the way that it had not been before. Yeah, no, I I think it did do that. Yes. Sorry, I I cut you You off. I'm talking talking so much. I know you want to get through stuff. So I'm going to shush and see what else. Oh, 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 no, no, that's fine. (laughs) I I just not want to do that. Um, But, you know, one of the things as I'm sitting here and thinking about it and, you know, Alan, I think it was Alan Simpson, the senator from Wyoming, who tried to characterize Anita Hill as a little bit slutty and a little bit nutty. And I remember watching the hearings and looking at her demeanor, uh, you know, her articulation of her, the points she wanted to make. I'm like, that doesn't conform to reality whatsoever. It's just self-evident. And yet you, you throw that, you know, or that was thrown out there. Um, moving to somebody else in a term I'd never heard before, but I just love it. Jane Crow, as opposed to Jim Crow. And I guess this was coined, if I'm not mistaken, by Pauli Murray, um, do you want to talk a bit about Jane Crow? Sure. I mean, Pauli Murray, you know, is, is another one of these just brilliant, brilliant black women in history who, you know, is sort of like, you know, lays kind of helps lay the groundwork for the legal strategy for Brown versus Board of Education. She was very involved in issues around civil rights um, and justice for African-Americans, but she also encountered sort of sexism within the Black community. Um, And this is something that, you know, has been documented well in hindsight that, you know, the civil rights movement, the Black power movement, and many, you know, movements that are challenging racial bias were also very much... um, you know, subject to gender disparities and gender discrimination, Um, even though a lot of times Black women were at the forefront of these movements, both as strategists and as foot soldiers. And so, you know, Pauli Murray is one of the folks who really hotly kind of criticized and she coins coins the term Jane Crow to really talk about this, you know, these, these sexist practices that are taking place even in the civil rights movement where Black women are having to fight for positions of leadership and and having to, you know, really elbow in in order to have their intellectual contributions recognized. Um, They were, you know, that's the thing that I do sort of find remarkable about Black women's history more broadly. Um, And if we, you know, whether we talk about, think about enslaved women who are lobbying, lodging petitions for freedom, we think about Ida B. Wells running her old paper, standing up against, you know, these homicidal violence, 
to Sandra Bundy, to even Pauli Murray, is that there's a way in which they are actively engaged in the battles at hand in their own time, but they also all seem to be doing so with an attention or a knowledge of the fact that they are playing a role in history. Yes. I'm always just, it just blows me away (laughs) the presence of mind to be, you know, deeply in the thick of it in your own moment and still also cognizant of this greater responsibility. Just phenomenal. Yeah. Well, this dynamic where you seemingly have a progressive movement and yet there's repression going on within the ranks. When I was a a student at Oxford many years ago, they have all these various societies you can join. And there was one called the Anarchist Society. I thought, isn't that kind of a contradiction in terms that the anarchists would get together for an organized meeting? So so I went just one time and there were only a few women present, but they were totally shut down in the conversations. And I thought, this isn't the spirit of everyone finds their own voice and there's no hierarchy, but anyway. Um, There's a couple of things you you mentioned that I I simply didn't even know these things ever happened. Uh, The Negroes World Fair of 1940 and the 1997 Million Women's March, or Woman March. Um, (laughs) I mean, I just just never, neither of those ever have passed my, you know, through my lens before. And obviously they're important events. You know, it is incredible to me that it shows sort of, I think, how how there are really, in many ways, still two Americas. Yes. Right? I mean, that is the other... Because I, I read the newspapers avidly, um, right. and mo- more than one, and media <laughs> lenses, and I see no mention. I mean, th- th- I never, I mean, the Million Man March, yes, I knew about that. Right, but the Million the Women's March, with the no, women. nothing about it. No, I mean, exactly. Yeah. In both of these instances, it shows sort of how, I think it's, for me, it shows two things, right? One, how important it is for Black people to create their own world. And to and how and how fiercely they fought to do so and to have their own sort of issues and humanity respected. And then with respect to the, the the Million Woman March, especially, I think it builds again on on the you know when you'd asked me before about sort of rape and the way that it, it how it played a role in, in a significant number of Black women leaving the South yes. um, to find better employment. Right. Um, in some respects, be, well before. Um, the actual Great Migration. In addition to that, also continuing to motivate people during the Great Migration. There's a way in which Black women have always been active, actively resisting and demanding justice. And I think that the the Million Women March is another kind of example of that. That on one hand, you had many Black women who were happy to support the Million Man March, even though it excluded them. Um, at the same time, but then still turn around and cleaved and fought and put together their own march to once again highlight issues. But what's also um, deep to me about that is that even though it was a million women march, I mean, they spent a huge amount of that time talking about children, families holistically, about homelessness, about incarceration, about reentry. Um, you know, it was a it was a different platform in some way, even though it was derided also um, for being heteronormative and also being, you know, some people joked and called it the, the million shopping mall march and this sort of thing. But the fact is, you have a significant number of black people join and convene 
They had, um, you know, invited international dignitaries as well as um, local uh, representatives to participate and to address the needs that were specific to black women in America. Yeah, no, it, it was the it was black women. I remember going to the Afro-Caribbean Festival in Brooklyn and, you know, it was all the tables and talking about the incarceration rates and what this was doing to the community. So it was certainly focused on their own lives, but it was much broader in its its concern and its support for for trying for justice. Before we run out of time, there's three other uh, things I wanted to get to. One is just a uh, statement about uh, we have so many black women mayors in America now from Chicago to Atlanta and elsewhere. And it's really astonishing and wonderful to see how they are taking the mantle of leadership. And I've been so impressed by so many of them in terms of how they they handle terrible things happening in their city and get in front of the camera with both a determination and a forbearance and a forgiveness that I, I think is superhuman given the history of injustice that's taken place. You know, and, and and for me, one of the things that it affirms is this sort of how intensely human Black women are, and and but the ways in which our society sort of doesn't permit them to be. So, you know, the fact that they are able to do the things that you speak about is a result of like this sort of carefully constructed kind of composure, resolve, and resilience. Um, you know, what they have had to get through to get to those positions. Sure. Um, but like Stacey Abrams, every time she's on TV, I go, wow, this is a committed, intelligent, determined, you know, shrewd. I mean, it's just it, amazing, you know, accomplishments. Stacey and, uh, Abrams is a brilliant example of this sort of major themes in Black women's histories. One of the things that we really try to do in the book is to talk about successes, but also to talk about stories where Black women, you know, worked really hard and, and tried to do everything right and still didn't get justice as an outcome, right? Oh, yeah. Got robbed, got robbed of that election almost. Got robbed of it a lot. Exactly. And so the to- <laughs> but that the totality of those experiences are vital to our history, because even though Stacey Abrams was robbed of that election, what does she go on to do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mobilizes, digs in, relies on grassroots activism, which is fundamental to Black women's history, networks and mobilizes these masses of Black people and the majority of the Black women voters to do what? The, right? the, the thing that people didn't think was possible, it turned Georgia blue. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's an amazing story. I, I wanted to make sure we got some positive stories, in, and that's one definitely, of them, absolutely, definitely that. Um, so, so, yeah, so so another one. I mean, actually, she went to the French Open wearing uh, an outfit that said "Mother, Champion, Queen, Goddess." So I happen to be a big tennis player and fan. And Serena Williams, uh, you mentioned the book. I did not know this once again that she has suffered through a disproportionate number of drug tests for steroids. It is appalling, um, and she calls attention to it. It was it came out in the news several years ago, right? But it's another example of the ways that Black women are over-policed and surveilled. Here we have this brilliant champion, never convicted of anything in a day in her life, right? And and she's routinely subjected to these, you know, these doping allegations. She's tested more than anyone else. They show up unexpectedly. And at one point she was penalized. They tried to penalize her for not being there available when they showed up without announcement. 
So, you know, she is an example to me too, though, someone who has really fought the good fight in spite of being sort of tormented and resented for her success. I mean, the coverage of her as a champion compared to, you know, any white counterparts um, is pretty astonishing. I mean, it's literally like throwback to the racist kinds of imagery and and things that people talked about, you know, the late 19th century. Um, But she also handles it with such... um, a plum that I think it is a testament to the fact that she has been fighting that battle basically for her life. Well, I remember, I mean, when I came across that detail, it struck me because one of her famous counterparts, in fact, had her career suspended and basically derailed and ended because of drug, you know, tests that proved positive. And yet that person who was blonde and tall uh, was the one who was making more money from endorsements, uh, celebrity endorsements than, than, you know, Serena, who had far more championships under her belt. Right, exactly. And yep. that's, that's the other the, the, the thing that we when we started off this conversation, we talked about, on one hand, the desire to resist depicting Black women as a monolith, but then you have these issues that impact all Black women, no matter what their strata. So whether it's an everyday woman making pennies on the dollar compared to a white man or Serena Williams. Right. Yeah, no, it, it goes high, high, yeah. Right. Yeah. So one last thing, because there was yet another surprise for me, even when I got to the conclusion of this book. So the, the background for the Statue of Liberty, and you mentioned the person who claimed it, but the fact that it was meant to be, you know, a, a you know the brainchild of a French abolitionist supporter. Um, can you say a little bit more about the Statue of Liberty before we, we go out here? Oh, sure. I mean, you basically said it, but I'm happy to sort of fill it out. I mean, sure. yeah, exactly that you have these, you know, this French abolitionist, two of them, Edward de la Boulay and also Frederic Auguste Bartholdi, um, basically use black women's imprint on the figure, right? Um, they're, they had these early plans for building Lady Liberty, but they were based on Bartoldi's earlier designs of Black Egyptian women. Um, and initially, you know, they had depicted a broken shackle and chain, you know, at the statue's feet. And while the chains and the shackles are replaced by a tablet commemorating independence, um, the chains are still there. So, you know, it, it is one of these, it was one of the, another one of the examples, because on one hand, it was a great way to end the book. We have sort of Patrice Akumu scaling the Statue of Liberty, right? This Black woman famously to protest the, the concentration camps that house immigrant and migrant children at the border, um, or, what, or, or in, in concentration camp-like conditions. Yes. Uh, yes. For sure. To um, so she's scaling the Statue of Liberty, right, to help liberate or protest this treatment. And this statue itself, of Liberty, is based right on this black, you know, this idea of free black women or black women's imprint. Yeah, well, and how the, the the original design was probably you know adjusted to make sure it was palatable because by now you know the dedication was what eighteen eighty six. So you're you're moving. Right. They changed the it. Right. Oh yeah. Right. Even though, right, exactly. There are references to the Civil War and, and abolition recurred repeatedly, re- recurred repeatedly during its first, you know, introduction in the U.S. Uh, in 1871, um, for sure. 
Yeah. So anyway, just another case of trying to get to an ideal, <laughs> not getting there, quite frankly. But the, the amazing thing is never giving up, never you know, giving up. Never giving up is right. One of the things that I, I talk about with students is that it doesn't it doesn't serve us to think about fighting racism or racial injustice in a linear way. Right. We don't start at point A and have this linear trajectory to where we get to the end of the finish line that it takes fits and starts. There's, um, we make some gains, we experience a backlash and we have to mobilize, come back and, and continue to fight and move forward. And that's yep. one of the things that we see and learn from black women's history. Yep. No, it's, a, it's an amazing story. It's a very valuable book. I, I want to thank you, Callie, so much for your time, uh, for being my guest here on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 48, Upending the Past on Behalf of Justice. My guest, Callie Nicole Gross, she's the co-author of A Black Women's History of the United States. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other previous episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. You can also go to the New Books Network website where it's listed under the special series programs. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. So today, hunting around, I seized on something from Maya Angelou, one of her books, where she said, how did it happen that we could nurse a nation of strangers, be maids to multitudes of people who scorned us, and still walk with some majesty and stand with a degree of pride? In that note, until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.